So whether you're a very experienced meditator or not, you've probably had enough time by now over these days to see the power of your own mind, the power that the thoughts have in the mind and how they tend to grip us, grab us, and we get caught up in these stories of our own mind. I think basically one of the first things we see, whether we're on our first retreat or even as experienced yogis, we see how out of control the mind is. (laughs) A few people are making faces like (laughs) really out of control. Now, we often say that the mind is like a drunken monkey. And I think that's such a wonderful metaphor because it is like a monkey just swinging from tree to tree, you know, just sort of mindlessly just going wherever it wants to go, wandering wherever it wants to go, going to all kinds of different locations. You know, saying, oh, that's an attractive banana over there. I think I'll go after that. You know, and just swinging over it. You know, one attractive banana after the next. And I think that we all have our own, our own objects of what we can say have been our attractive bananas that the mind has swung after since we've been here. I really think that much of what we're doing is training the mind, very much a training of the mind. And I think that training the mind is like learning any other skill. In an interesting way, it isn't that complicated. You know, it's, it's almost the same as learning to ride a bicycle or learning to drive a car. I mean, when we first get into a car and we've never driven a car before, we sit in that seat and we look at the panels, the, the, whole, the control panels, it looks totally overwhelming, like how are we going to get our hands and our feet and our eyes and our minds, and everything to operate so that we can actually go in one direction and get it all to work, work, work well. And then we start to learn. We start to learn about the different parts and how what works with what and how you put your foot there and how you turn the steering wheel this way and that way. And little by little, it starts to become easier. It starts to become more automatic, and we get to the point where we just hop in the car without thinking at all about how we actually drive the car, and we turn the engine on and we drive away. It's completely automatic. And in the same way, we're learning about this whole territory of our own mind, learning about what works what and what goes where and what happens when we do this and we're just starting to understand this whole terrain of the mind, which seems extremely complicated, extremely complex. But yet, at some point, things start making sense, starts getting a little easier. It doesn't seem quite as complex as it did. So what are we actually trying to accomplish in this training that we're doing? Sometimes in the beginning of meditation practice, people think that what we're trying to do is stop thinking. And it's not uncommon at all for, for many people to come to retreat and, and have that assumption that what we're trying to do is stop the thought so that the mind gets quiet. We're not thinking anymore because thinking is the problem. Thinking is the enemy. And we need to get rid of these thoughts. We really think that thoughts are the problem. In deep concentration states, as we're sitting and we do longer periods of meditation, we actually notice that the mind can start getting quieter, that the thoughts don't impose as much, and maybe we have more moments when the thoughts are not actually even that present. The mind can get very, very quiet. We can experience a deep stillness in our meditation when the conditions are supportive for, the, for this to happen, when we have the supportive conditions of the stillness, of the quiet, of non-distraction, of people taking care of our laundry and our food and 
the telephones we don't have to answer. And it, the mind can get very quiet. But when we leave the retreat <laughs> and we go back into the daily life and we go back into our usual routine, the mind starts up again. The mind gets very busy. And unless we have some deeper insight, unless we have some deeper understanding into the nature of thought, that we're still going to be quite bothered, we're still going to be quite distracted by those thoughts. So something else has to happen. We can't just expect to stop the thoughts. In fact, we really need our thoughts. We need thinking mind. We need to to use our thoughts, our reflections, our contemplations, our discriminations, as a way to live in the world, as a way to move in the world. And the mind is a important and natural function of being in this human body. So it's not the thoughts that are the problem. So then what is actually the problem? What is it that we have to understand and to look at about our minds? It seems that where the problem really arises in, is in what we call our identification with our thoughts, or maybe another word that might resonate more easily for you is the belief in our thoughts. It's when we take our thoughts to be the true reality. We take our thoughts to be the truth about who we are, about who other people are, about how situations are, and we aren't able to see any possibility outside of what the thinking mind is saying. This identification, identifying with the thought, thinking that the thought is me, the thought is the truth, this is what we call the attachment or the clinging on to our thoughts. This is like, it's like glue. <laughs> so it's like glue in the mind or stickiness in the mind. There's some phenomenal thing that happens where the thought arises, and somehow we just get hooked <laughs> onto it. It becomes so real. It becomes the truth about things. And we're not able to actually sometimes see what's actually going on. One teacher called this Velcro mind. You know, it's just like, <laughs> like, you know, Velcro is such a good example because you, when you put two pieces of Velcro together, <laughs> It just adheres, and actually to get it apart, you, you know, it takes some effort to kind of, you know, unstick it. You know, it just merges, and that seems to happen in the mind. The mind, we tighten around the thought. The thought, we, we get narrow. The mind narrows around the thought, contracts. We get fixated with our thoughts, and we say, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And we so rarely, unless we have some, so we come to some kind of spiritual teachings or some kind of support that says, wait a minute, question that. Doubt that. Maybe there's another way. Maybe your thought isn't exactly the truth. Maybe that there's some other way of perceiving than the way that we're thinking about it or that you're thinking about it. The thoughts become so real. In fact, they become our reality. They become the whole reality that we know. When I was talking about this on one retreat, this one woman said, "My thoughts are when I see my thoughts, it's like blowing up a balloon. There's this little inflate, this de deflated balloon, and then the thoughts just blow it up into this." expansive thing that wasn't there before. And it becomes so real. It becomes so big. This is what happens in our own minds. In the early days of my practice, there was a, a, a story that my teachers told me, which always stayed in my mind, which helped me so much to, re, to understand and remember about this phenomenon. I call it paint, painting tigers on the wall my painting tigers on the wall. It's just a, a way of remembering. And it's a story about the ancient cavemen 
going, this one caveman going into the cave. And at the time, you know how there was the, the art of painting beautiful, beautiful figures on the walls of the cave. This one caveman went in and was painting this tiger very beautifully and very artistically and very detailed, very much detail. He's painting it and getting very involved in it, just loving the whole thing. And all of a sudden, it started to become so real. He looked at it and he, oh my God, a tiger! And he ran out of the cave. He got so engrossed and so involved in that piece of art that he forgot that it was just an expression of his imagination. And he ran. And it seems like this is what we do. We paint these amazing figurations, configurations in our own mind, and we get frightened. We get freaked out. And we run. We spin. We get agitated. We get restless. And we don't see. We don't see how we are creating these in our own mind. We don't see what we're doing. Some ways we might call this is the delusion or the veil. This is the veil that we have over our eyes. We don't see clearly. This is our predicament. Perhaps you're aware of what I'm talking about. <laughs> Perhaps you've seen this today. How you've got gripped, how you've got pulled in to some train of thought, to some particular story, particular uh, drama, and how you got hooked into it, and how difficult it was to let go, how difficult it was to come back into some kind of uh, ease or calmness within yourself. What kinds of conclusions have you made today about things? Conclusions about yourself and your practice, about other people here, Always a good one. <laughs> Who these other people are that you probably haven't even said hello to yet. You know, or conclusions about your partner back home or a relative or whatever. This is the way it is, we think. We get locked in. So the thoughts are not the problem. The fact that these what we call thoughts, these fabrications arise in the mind, it's not the problem. It's what happens when they arise in the mind. It's the identification with these thoughts as real, as true. There's one quote I really like from the Buddha, which I read in um, the Middle-Length Sayings, which is called the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the books that holds the original discourses of the Buddha. And the Buddha says, non-identification with anything has been declared by the Blessed One. For in whatever way one conceives, the fact is ever other than that. <coughs> How poignant. <laughs> or in whatever way one conceives, Whatever way we're conceiving, the fact is ever other than that. And I just have to say that um, the reason I have this printed so neatly on a piece of paper is because um, when I was doing a two-month retreat, uh, I think it was either la last, last year or the year before, I can't remember, there was a mirror in my room. It was a guy house, big mirror small room and a big mirror. <laughs> and every time I would walk in the room, there's a habit of looking in the mirror. At least I have that habit. And it just kept going on, and I would look in the mirror, and I would think that what I would see in the mirror was who I was. And then I would get all involved in that whole conception of that one way or another. And I finally got just so frustrated with that whole thing going on that I took the mirror down and I put this up. <laughs> Just reminding myself that whatever way I was conceiving my image, the fact was other than the way I was conceiving it. And it was such a wonderful 
reminder, such a wonderful reflection that I can't know. I can't know that my mind is just going to imagine and make up all kinds of realities based on my own personal conditioning about how I think things are. But is it the truth? Is it really the way things are? Non-identification with anything. Thoughts arise. Thoughts arise. They're simply arising thoughts. We really need to see them for what they are. This is what our practice can help us with. We can see them for what they are. It seems to me that they're just these momentary blips in the mind. Just these, I mean, it's so hard to even find any language to describe what they are because as soon as we try to make contact with them, they disappear. Just some kind of firing of a synapse in the, in the brain that just something happens where it takes on whole reality. And yet they seem, when we look closely, they seem so insubstantial. They really seem empty of any solid reality whatsoever. Why does it seem that these thoughts have such a reality? A very good metaphor to help us understand seems to be one of thinking of the mind like a movie. That each momentary arising thought is like a f- one frame on a film strip. We have a film strip of a movie. We might think that each thought is like one of those frames. And as that film plays out, as those momentary thoughts play out, they seem to take on some continuity. They move between a past, the present, the future, and they have some kind of connection or some kind of train of thought which seems to take on continuity, just like those frames on the film strip. One frame, the next frame, the next frame, and we play it, and all these stories weave out. And we believe in the film. We believe in the movie. And it's very much like when we're sitting at a movie theater and we're sitting in the chair and we know that it's a movie playing out on the screen. And yet we get involved. There's some kind of human phenomena that we just get involved in these stories. And we get we, we feel all the emotions, we feel the, the rising, the falling, the movement, the swings of all that, of all the emotion around it. We even know it's a movie, <laughs> and we still get caught. It seems like it's very similar in our own minds, but it's harder to remember that it's only a movie. And this movement over time, gives this illusion of continuity. And we think that the situation that we're thinking about is going to continue in some kind of linear fashion. We, there's some kind of illusion of, line, of, lin, of a linear unfolding. We think that we know what's going to happen, or we think we have some sense of what's going to happen. But do we really know? Do we know at all what's going to happen in the next moment, in the next five minutes? It seems we really want some sense of security, some sense of control, some way to feel that we know what's happening in our world. But we don't know. It's an illusion. When we can actually see a thought for what it is, when we actually can see it, just see this momentary blip in the mind, the mind has less power to overwhelm us. We begin to break free from the hypnotic trance that we often find ourselves lost in. Our mind only has power if we give it power. 
The thoughts only have reality if I keep giving them reality. Manindraji, one of our teachers here, has this lovely phrase which you've probably heard me say. He says, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's only a thought. The thought of your mother is not your mother. It's only a thought. And I think this is such a, 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 a good reflection how we instantly think when we think of our mother, for example, that we are there with her. And the whole thing gets played out. But it's only a thought. This is from Dilbo Kensei Rinpoche, who is a great Tibetan Buddhist meditation master who died in the last decade. The nature of mind, it's called. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally, we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Mind creates both samsara and nirvana, yet there is nothing much to it. It is just thoughts. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, as they have been doing throughout countless lives. To gain control over the mind, we need to be vigilant, constantly examining all of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. To cut through the mind's clinging, it is important to understand that all appearances are empty, like the appearance of water in a mirage. Beautiful forms are of no benefit to the mind nor can ugly forms harm it in any way. Remain in equanimity in the understanding that all phenomena are nothing more than projections of your own mind. So we're asked to look carefully, asked to look very closely at what it is that we're getting entangled in, what it is that's causing us this agitation and this pain that we experience so deeply. We're asked to find something within ourselves that has more strength than the thinking mind, something that has more power than the thinking mind. We might call it awareness, might call it wisdom, might call it the original mind. It's that which sees clearly. It's that which knows what's true. And this can happen in just a moment, just an instant when the veil is lifted. And we see the mind for what it is. We see the thoughts for what they are that they're empty of any reality. This is from Ajahn Shah, who you've, most of you have heard of, the great forest meditation master from Thailand, who's a Jack Cornfield's teacher and many people have had exposure to. About this mind, 
In truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions and thoughts come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, or sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness are not the mind, but a mood coming to deceive it. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at, or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. It's just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions and thoughts. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature, of sense impressions and thoughts, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we train the mind to know those impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Just this. <laughs> So here we cultivate this awareness, we cultivate this power of the mind to empower this awareness, to strengthen this awareness through familiarizing ourselves with this aspect of our mind, by returning to it, by remembering, remembering this awareness, this awake mind that we are so that we can see things as they are and not be deceived by the fabrications of our mind, not get caught in the moods that pass through, to be able to rest, to be able to remain in this peaceful place within ourselves. Awareness recognizes a thought as a thought before it gets blown up into some kind of unwieldy construction. The thought of my mother is not my mother. No power. And when we see this, it dissolves. And we rest back into that spaciousness of mind, the spaciousness of our being. This is the practice of letting go the practice of letting go, in this case, the practice of letting go of our thoughts, letting go of the belief in all of that reality that we construct in our own mind. We can notice with mindfulness, right in the moment when we're clinging, when we're holding on, right in the moment of recognizing that clinging, that holding, and we can let go, we can relax that holding, relax the holding. And this is what frees the mind. Frees the mind from what? It frees the mind from clinging. It frees the mind from attachment. Every moment of mindfulness, every moment that we see this, can weaken this attachment, can weaken this clinging. And every moment of mindfulness reinforces the non-clinging and the clear seeing. When we look closely, we see that the thoughts are changing moment to moment. We can almost see these frames, these instant frames, moment to moment to moment. We can see that they're not solid, that there's only an illusion of solidity, only an illusion of continuity. And when we see them dissolve, and they dissolve, when we can see them dissolve, it's not even a question of letting go, really. It's a question of seeing and seeing what happens to them. They dissolve back into the empty space. 
And when we see them dissolve, then it's possible to take things more lightly. We don't get as deceived by our views and our opinions and the way that we're perceiving things. There's really nothing worth holding on to. Nothing worth holding on to. It just causes more pain, just causes more suffering. They say that angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. When we're not holding on or believing so intently these movements in our own minds, we feel more spacious. We feel lighter. Things come and go. We're not as tossed around by the conditions of life, by the challenges of life. We feel more balanced. We feel more steady in the face of all of these changes that are occurring. It's true that for some people, particularly at the beginning of practice, it takes time to even be able to recognize that there are thoughts. Some, for, for quite a long time, I was talking about recognizing thoughts and letting go of thoughts, and people would come up to me and say, you know, I don't even recognize my thoughts. I don't even know that I have thoughts. Now, I'm just getting to the point where I actually can see that there's something like what you're talking about arising in my mind. And it's been so important for me to, to recognize that and to acknowledge that, that it's really a process. It's a real, really a process of awakening, a, a process of recognition, when more and more the, the, the contents of our mind and the experiences in our body, they start to show up, they start to reveal ourselves. This is the practice. It's the practice of cultivating this awareness so that we can see more and more what's actually happening with our own, within our own mind, within our own being, within our own heart, so that we can see into the insubstantiality, so we can see the impermanence, so we can see the clinging, and we know when to let go that we even know what it means to let go. This is a process. It's not something that we can just expect to understand or just expect to be able to comprehend. It's a practice. It's something that we grow into. And slowly, slowly, the sun begins to rise, begin to wake up. As we start to see more clearly and we feel stronger in, ourse in ourselves and we start to have more recognition, like what Christopher was talking about last night of the three characteristics of impermanence, of the unsatisfactory nature of things, of the insubstantial or selfless nature of things, we start to get more of a sense of this and we feel stronger in ourselves and we're not as overwhelmed, and we're not as confused by all that's going on within our internal experience. We start to feel more capacity to face the challenges of life and to face the challenges that we feel within ourselves. We might say more capacity to face our demons, you know, the really difficult aspects, the difficult feelings and emotions and mind states that arise within ourselves, we actually have more strength to face all of this. We might think that as we start to have more and more insight into these very important characteristics, that actually the challenges of life slow down. This is another assumption that people make. Oh, well, once I start getting more enlightened, then life just isn't as hard as it used to be. <laughs> Well, I don't think that's actually true. <laughs> it seems that the challenges keep coming. And maybe that when the capacity starts to grow, when we feel even more strong in ourselves, that the challenges get tougher. <laughs> we even, we seem, for some people, we're even tested more dearly to see where it is that we're clinging, 
where it is that we're holding on, where are the last of those grips in the corners of our consciousness. When I talk of this, I, I so instantly think of the Dalai Lama because he's somebody who I think has tremendous capacity of heart and mind and understanding and depth of, of enlightened insight. And I look at his life and the challenges that he deals with in, in one day, in one day, being the leader of a whole country that's been tormented and nearly destroyed, his whole religion in his country destroyed, nearly destroyed. And people coming to him every day in their depths of their pain, their sorrow, their, their tremendous suffering. And of course he's challenged by that. And yet his capacity is so wide, his robe is so wide that he can, he can hold people in this place. He can, he can be a leader for them to live in an enlightened way in the, in the, in, in the face of their pain and suffering doesn't necessarily get easier. <laughs> being human, being human, there's birth, there's aging, there's sickness, and there's death, and that's never going to go away. These are things that we will continually be faced with, and we will continually be tested to look at our relationship to these very difficult aspects in this human life. Yet it seems that we do have more and more strength as we deepen into the insights. We do have more strength. We do have more capacity to cut through, to work with these difficult states of mind. There's one sutta where the Buddha talks about working with these distracting thoughts. And he's talking about the technique or the way of using what he's calling removing, removing already arisen mind states, removing already arisen difficult mind states. And he says, what bhikkhus should be abandoned by removing? Here a bhikkhu, reflect, reflecting wisely, always wisely, using the wisdom, reflecting wisely, does not tolerate an arisen thought of sensual desire. He abandons it. He does away with it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will. He abandons it, does away with it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of cruelty. He abandons it. He does away with it. Now, I really like that because it shows that we don't have to just be passive when these thoughts arise in the mind. For so long in my practice, I thought that we were, we were being taught letting be, just letting be, accept, allow, be unconditionally friendly with all things, you know. <laughs> but then the Buddha says, no, you don't tolerate, you don't tolerate an arisen thought of ill will of cruelty, of desire and clinging. You remove it, you abandon it. You don't allow it to expand. You don't allow it to grow in the mind with more aversion and more fear and more clinging. But with mindfulness, we cut through it. And for me, it's that I love the image of the sword of wisdom. We take that sword of wisdom and we cut through these negative and difficult states of mind. We don't tolerate it. We cut through so that we can come back to a place of peace, a place of ease in ourselves where we're not being tormented by these thoughts in our own mind. But we do it with gentle restraint. We don't cut through, we don't remove with more anger, with more fear but we do it with love and respect, wisdom. Without restraint, without using some kind of restraint, these thoughts can take over our house and we feel victimized, we feel abused by these thoughts in our own mind. 
One teacher called these difficult, distracting thoughts and mind states, he said they were like thieves in our house. They were like thieves coming to steal our jewels. Stealing our jewels, stealing away our serenity, our tranquility, our joy. And without some kind of weapon, wisdom, sword, they will take over, they'll wreak havoc. There was one woman on a retreat that I taught recently who was having some very painful memories arising in her mind, very painful images, coming through images, and she couldn't stop them. And at one point she thought that actually, even though she was so overwhelmed by these thoughts that she should let them in, she said, and I suppose there's all kinds of ways we can rationalize these sorts of things. She says, maybe they're coming to teach me something. You know, maybe there's something that I need to learn from these thoughts, these memories. And maybe I need to be kind to them. And you can hear there's some wisdom in that, you know, being kind to the mind, not being aggressive, not being cruel to the mind. And yet there's something that's not being understood there because she didn't see that these were thieves that were tormenting her, that were stealing her serenity. She felt no peace, and it had been going on for a very long time. She was being too generous, too generous. I said she was, her, metta, she, her metta was confused. It's not a place to be showing metta towards these thoughts in the mind that were tormenting him, tormenting her. And I said, tell them they're not welcome, that you're not willing to have your peaceful house destroyed. Don't put up with it. For me, this really points to the power that we have in the practice. The Buddha said, be a master of your own mind. Be a master of your own mind. He said, I think the thoughts I want to think, and I don't think the thoughts I don't want to think. Incredible. <laughs> so inspiring to think that there's that possibility, that potential for mastery over our own minds. Think the thoughts I want to think, not think the thoughts I don't want to think. When we develop awareness, when we really start to develop this strength of mind, a factor that's strengthened along with the awareness is what's called discriminating awareness. It's one of the characteristics of awareness itself the ability to be able to discriminate. And since we see that we can't get rid of our thoughts, and I can tell you, after all these years of practice, you cannot get rid of your thoughts. <laughs> they still come. Even after sometimes sitting three-month retreats, and I'm sure there's some LTY long-term yogis here who know this, they still parade <laughs> through the mind. No. So since we can't throw them out, we learn how to discriminate what thoughts to follow, what thoughts not to follow, what thoughts to empower, what thoughts not to empower. We start to have a skillful relationship with our own mind. We can see that there are some thoughts that arise in the mind that lead to more love, more friendship, more peace, thoughts that lead to liberation. All the all the thoughts that I'm sharing with you tonight are thoughts. These are my own thoughts. They're thoughts that I'm hoping through my intention will lead to more wisdom, lead to more liberation. You want to follow these thoughts. You want to take in these thoughts. There are other thoughts that lead to more suffering, lead to more pain, lead to more conflict, confusion. Those are the thoughts we want to distinguish. We want to be able to say, no, not those thoughts. We don't want to encourage those thoughts. 
We don't want to expand. We don't want to exaggerate those thoughts. Important to distinguish two kinds of thoughts, the wholesome thoughts, the unwholesome thoughts. We can ask ourselves when a thought arises, is this useful? Is this thought leading to more clarity? Is it leading to more truth? Is it leading to more wisdom? Is it leading to more love? Or is it not useful? Is it leading to more suffering, to more pain, to more confusion, more destruction? And we can see, because of the thoughts move in the mind, is it useful? Is it not useful? Knowing what to follow, increasing our mastery over our own minds. Again, it's not necessarily something that we can do just now. We can say, I've, I've, I've talked with people who say, I don't know <laughs> what thoughts, whether it's a useful thought or it's not a useful thought. You know, I don't know whether the thought is, is coming from fear. I don't know whether it's coming from more wisdom. But we practice. We pay attention. We see if we can get more insight, more understanding. And in this way, we can start to direct our reality, have more, more control over our reality so that we don't find ourselves in places that we don't want to be, in difficult mind states that we don't want to be in. What kinds of thoughts do we encourage? Not by clinging on to these thoughts, but through wisdom, through understanding. We encourage metta, loving-kindness. We encourage compassion, or karuna. We encourage renunciation, or letting go. Encourage thoughts of generosity, of giving. Thoughts of kindness. Thoughts of forgiveness. Thoughts of patience. We don't have to throw them out. <laughs> we want to follow these. We want to let them expand. We want to feel the joy, the happiness, the peace that arises in the mind, arises in the heart when these thoughts flower in our mind. Let ourselves be touched by these. This is what shapes our reality. Again, from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So we're letting go, letting go of our old ways of being, old habits that haven't been helpful, that have been painful, that have caused us suffering. It means we let go of what's familiar. We let go of what is known. And it means we have to let go of our certainty about things as well. When we let go of the old, we have to let go of our certainty. And we may begin to feel less secure. We may feel more vulnerable. We may feel less substantial. But what's left as we deepen into this? What's there? I want to end with a simple haiku, my favorite haikus, three-lined poem. Simply trust. Don't the leaves flutter down 
just like that. But in thinking about this poem, I was realizing this is more of an autumn poem, and this is springtime. So some springtime haikus from me, <laughs> and you can make up your own. Simply trust. Don't the birds sing just like that? Simply trust. Doesn't the beaver swim just like that? Simply trust. Doesn't the wind blow just like that? Simply trust. Doesn't the fresh young leaves burst forth from the branches of their mother just like that? Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. May all beings live in trust. May all beings let go. May all beings meet the original mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.